Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Lord, our souls cling to the dust. We seek and, and shift our gaze downward to this earth and all that is before us. But we pray, Lord, that you would give us life according to your word. Lord, that we would seek, and when we're told of your ways, you would answer us and teach us your statutes. Help us to be able to understand what you have revealed to us through your word. That we would meditate on you and your character, your wondrous works. It would help our soul to be able to melt away from the sorrow. You would strengthen us according to your scriptures, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Jude 8 to 13. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. Yet in like manner, these people also rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, for they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are like hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Jude, in this section, continues to teach what false teachers are and how they have crept in unnoticed in the church. He is teaching the church how to be able to contend for the faith, and his starting point as he teaches them to contend for the faith is not to be able to teach them of their common salvation, which he wanted to write to them for, His first initial step is to be able to unpack this false teaching that has crept into the church. He does not start with what the gospel is. He's starting with what the false teachers say the gospel is and ultimately what it isn't because it's not good news. And uh, as he unpacks this, in this section, he's referring to them and they and themselves, these. And in some level, the church has accepted this false teaching either because they did not correct the false teaching and let it continue in the church, or even worse than that, is what they've done is they haven't seen it as false teaching at all. And what what I just said, there's two dangers in what I just said. The first is that they know there's false teaching in the church, but they don't actually correct it. This can happen when you don't want to upset or offend someone. Or what I've often seen is, is actually they look at this external fruit and they say things like, well, look what good it has done to the church. 
Look at all the people that have started attending. Look at our budget, how it's increased. And, and if we upset them, or, or well, they'll leave. It could cause some hurt or pain. But what we actually see is the false teaching does more harm than good. The harm is because you ultimately don't have the gospel of grace at all. You don't have good news. And what, they're, what you're doing is, in seeking not to upset someone, you're actually bringing harm to everyone who listens to it. But the second thing that I said is, is probably more dangerous. At least in the first example, someone has the ability to be able to recognize what false teaching is. But the second is probably more likely in the case of the book of Jude. And that is you don't know false teaching at all. You don't understand that it's false teaching. In the first, at least you understand it's false, but you don't do anything about it. That's bad. But if you don't know what it is, and you don't know it's bad, that's even worse. It has failed to be able to be labeled as false teaching. The next week, we'll look at more of what this question of what level does something rise to before you might say this is false teaching. Or what is a false teacher? But for now, we need to continue to notice that apart from Jude's application to be able to contend for the faith, what he's doing is he's instructing his readers, those who are called, beloved, and kept, about these errors that have crept in unnoticed in the church. And he continues to give us their errors with examples and specifically illustrations from the Old Testament. Now, if you ever want to understand how to read the Old Testament, read the New Testament, understand how they then read the Old Testament. Now, in today's passage, the reason why we're going to spend a whole day on this passage is because we probably don't know these Old Testament passages well. The Jew just merely goes through them, three examples, one after the other. But we need to be able to turn back to understand what he is actually saying and how that then connects to these false teachers. So in these three examples, he gives us Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And that's where we'll be focusing on this morning. The first is the way of Cain. He begins this section by saying, Woe to you! As Jesus rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, now Jude does the exact same thing to these false teachers. He uses these three examples from the false Old Testament. Now the first one is probably the most familiar to us. The story of Cain and Abel. However, what then does it mean when Jude rebukes them and says that they walk in the way of Cain? Now if you turn back to Genesis chapter 4, that's where you find this story. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 18. And John, in the epistle of 1 John, as looking back at this, he describes Cain as the wicked one. He says that we should not be like Cain. He murdered his brother, his deeds are evil, and Abel's were righteous. John highlights the jealousy between Cain over Abel and Abel's righteous deeds. Cain hated his brother, and John points out that the world will hate believers. John highlights Cain's sinful nature. 
the seed of sin which is sown within, the outcomes and, and flowing from this in contrast to Abel who is righteous and the conflict between Cain and Abel. However, Jude does not really highlight Cain's sinful actions per se. What he highlights is the way of Cain. John 1, I think, First John describes Cain's actions, but Jude is, is highlighting Cain's direction. This does not mean that they're contrary, but focus on different things. Now, you could spend a lot of time going over the story of Cain and Abel. However, I want us to specifically look at one thing, and that is Cain's direction, his movement, the journey of Cain. And specifically, what his journey is when it comes to the relationship and relation to God. Now we know this story well. Cain and Abel come before God to be able to bring offerings to him. But God is pleased with Abel's, but he has no regard for Cain's offering. Now this is the first shift in the narrative. We're told in verse 5 that Cain was angry. And his face fell. Cain, God doesn't have any regard to Cain's offering, and his shift is then his gaze is downward, his heart became angry. Here Cain assumed that he would come to God, and how God wanted him to come. Rather than how God had prescribed for him to be able to come to make an offering to him. And came for God the importance of the principle that we worship. And how we worship is that we worship God. We must do what is pleasing to God. And, and Abel's offering was pleasing to God, but God did not have any regard for Cain's offering. But the second change is that God speaks to Cain and asks two questions. Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? God gives him, Cain, a chance to be able to repent. But what does Cain do? He chooses not to. It began with anger and now he refuses to listen to God as God speaks grace to Cain. His heart is hardened. First, it doesn't, he doesn't worship God. And the next is now he's angry towards God. But it doesn't stop there. But notice on this it's not only about Cain and Abel as we often tell this story. It's more a story about Cain and God. Abel is merely just a, a secondary person in all of this. And God continues again to ask more questions. Where is Abel, your brother? Cain answers. He flat out lies to God. He tells him that he does not know. Now, I'm not a mortician. However, I'm pretty sure dead bodies don't move themselves. The body is exactly where Cain had left it. Cain knew where the body is and he lies to God about it. You see this progression. False worship then leads to anger, then leads to murder, flat out lies to God. Then God curses Cain. Quick note here, if you ever notice that God never curses Adam and Eve. He curses the serpent. He curses 
the land that Adam will work, but he never curses Adam and Eve. But here, in chapter 4, he curses Cain. So Cain is cursed. Cain complains against God. This is the fifth step. Now he's complaining against God. God continues to show him grace through all of what he does. But ultimately what we see is this direction, this hardened heart, this sinful action, these lies. And ultimately Cain is driving himself away from God. That his destination is moving further from God. In verse 16 we see that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. All these things are building on one another. It's not merely that he kills his brother. It's all these actions that are leading up to it, that are leading past this. The direction that Cain wants to be is away from God. He then eventually seeks to be able to make his own home, his own city. He builds it around himself, his achievements in life. He names it after his son. Now this is what we see is the way of Cain in, in this direction of false teaching. Notice how subtle those steps are throughout all of this. It first starts with Cain's inability and no heart to be able to worship God how he has been told to worship Him. And even after that, no, the ability to be able to repent, he doesn't repent and just merely worship God correctly. His heart is filled with anger. Jealousy, his actions of lies and deceit, complaining against God. In the end, anger, bitterness, hate, and lying, all moving away from God. This is what false teaching does. It's subtle. And its shift in its gaze is merely moving you away from God, the truth. False teaching has one simple premise. Let's teach anything that is false. Cain is a fugitive, a wanderer on the earth, as you see in verse 14. He has, no, he has a destination, you might say. And that destination is merely anywhere where God is not. I just don't care. I just don't want to be near God. And false teaching does just that. It shifts our gaze away from God. Even just one degree on a compass makes all the difference. Over a hundred yards, it's merely just five feet. No big deal, but it is a... If you're trying to get to a particular place, you might be walking into the wrong shop. However, it all adds up. Especially if you merely just don't shift it one degree, but you add another degree to the first degree, then your, your direction has changed drastically. Even just one degree from San Francisco to Washington, D.C., you wouldn't end up in Washington, D.C. at all. You'd end up on the other side of Baltimore. And that's what the way of Cain does. It's shift and it's subtle. It's shift and it's gaze and moving your way from worshiping God correctly actually worshiping yourself and your achievements in life. 
And Jude warns them about the way of Cain in which these false teachers walk. The second example is Balaam's error. Now here's another interesting story that Jude refers to as he speaks of these false teachings that have crept into the church. And he says that they have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. So what is Balaam's error? If you turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 22, this is where we find the story of Balaam. Now, Although this story is a long story, it's actually one of repetition. This repetition is used to be able to show the point. So we have the story of Balaam, the son of Beor, who's a prophet. He's asked by the king of the Moabites, Balak, the son of Zippor, to curse the Israelites because they've grown too strong and numerous. So he calls upon Balaam because of all of his prophecies in the past have been true. Those whom he blesses are blessed, and those whom he curses are cursed. See that in verse 6. At first, Balaam refuses to go, but eventually he goes. Now the change in this is actually what the king of the Moabites, Balak, had offered him. He actually said, well, I can up my price, you might be able to curse them. So in this time, he goes and he speaks four oracles over the nation of Israel. But as he goes to be able to speak these curses, they actually come out as blessings. And these blessings are not what the king of the Moabites, Balak, had asked. The interesting story that we actually probably know about Balaam is actually before Balaam meets Balak. That's when Balaam's going to be able to go meet King Balak. And there Balaam's donkey sees the angel of the Lord blocking the path and he stops. But Balaam is unable to be able to see the angel of the Lord. And he strikes the donkey he's had for many years and threatens to kill her. Eventually the donkey talks. Because the Lord opened her mouth. Finally, the Lord opened Balaam's eyes to be able to see the angel Lord, just as the Lord used the donkey to be able to speak his word. He then uses Balaam to be able to go speak the word to the Moabite king about blessing the nation of Israel. And in that situation, the Moabite king wants an outcome, but is stopped by Balaam, who is just like the donkey speaking God's word. God used him to be able to speak a blessing over Israel instead of the curse which Balak the king wanted. Now here is where the story gets interesting. There's a couple of things as you read through this story in Numbers chapter 22 to 24. Where if you just read those three chapters by themselves, you'd see in chapter 22 verse 20 that it, God tells Balaam, in a dream, to go if he is called. However, a few verses later, God's anger was kindled because Balaam went. It seems quite strange that God would say that in a dream, go if you've been called. Well, he's somewhat called. But then in the next verse, it's the anger of the Lord was kindled against Balaam. However, we don't find the answer in those three chapters. We actually find it in the next chapter, 25. After Balaam and Balak return to their houses, 
Numbers chapter 25, we see that the people of Israel started to go after the daughters of Moab and then make sacrifices and worship the Moabite God. Israel then yokes themselves to Baal of Peor. And now the anger of the Lord is kindled against Balaam. We know why it is. Because eventually, 24,000 Israelites would die from this. But it seems like that story ends. We don't get any answers to what happened in this time between chapter 24 and chapter 25. However, we find out later in Scripture, in Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, how Balaam is connected to what happened at Peor. It says in verse 16 in Numbers 31, Behold, these are like Balaam's advice. Cause the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Peter points out in 2 Peter chapter 2 that a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. What we actually find out that is Balaam, as he's gone to make these four pronouncements of blessing over Israel, that somewhere in this he advised the king of Moab how to be able to defeat the Israelites. And that wasn't through curses pronounced on them, But how he made it happen was he causes them to sin. Balaam is set up as an is set as an example of how God uses wicked men with evil intentions to be able to bless the people of God. This shows God's sovereignty to be able to use the means of accomplishing his purposes. But here, Balaam is used as as an example of false teachers who seek their own desires rather than what they have been called to do by God. The church in Ergagam, in the book of Revelation, is rebuked because they hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that it might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Jude says that's exactly what's happening in the church. That here you have Balaam who, who looks in, in a few chapters like he's doing exactly what God wants, but what we actually find is he's is advising the people of God to be able to go after false idols, to be able to practice sexual immorality. That here... The false teachers are seeking to be able to enlarge their bank account. A big part of the story of Balaam is that he he refuses the first time the king ups his price and then Balaam goes. Willing to sell his role and calling as prophet that he might be able to get rich. That these false teachers are laying stumbling blocks in front of the people of God that they might indulge in sexual immorality and false worship. Eventually, Balaam dies and is put to death by the sword. Again, it doesn't take long for us to be able to connect this story about how this would relate to the church today. As Jude is telling the church to be able to contend for the faith which is delivered to all the saints, he warns them of the false teachers who 
can follow their checkbook rather than God's book. They care more about their bank account than the account that they have to give to God on their last day. They care more about the number of followers than those who are truly following God's Word, and particularly they're following God's Word themselves. They seek to be able to make a name for themselves rather than speaking and edifying to glorify God in His name. God might still use them like He used Balaam for His purposes. But Balaam's error is his desire for personal gain rather than glorifying God. We can see this as Peter exhorts elders to shepherd the flock as he warns them and tells them, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And lastly, Jude then turns to Korah's rebellion. Jude has already mentioned how the false teachers have rejected God's authority in verse 6 and 8. However, Jude's reference here helps us understand how the false teachers are rejecting God's authority. The story of Korah's rebellion can be found in Numbers chapter 16. Here, Korah, the son of Ithar, and other men begin to start a rebellion in the camp of Israel. Now, there is many of these found in the book of Numbers. However, Korah and about 250 men place themselves against Moses and Aaron. Your charge really is found in verse 3. They say that Moses and Aaron have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you, speaking of Moses and Aaron, exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Their charge is quite simple. Why are you leaders over all of Israel? Why are you elevated to a point where Moses is the one who speaks and Aaron is the one who is the high priest? Everyone is holy. We don't need you to lead us. They explain that the whole nation of Israel is holy. Why do then we have people serving in different capacities? Mainly the office of a priest. Now interesting. Korah is in the line of Levi, the Kohathite. Now he, as a Kohathite, would have had certain duties which were set for him. He was set apart to be able to do. But ultimately, Korah and his company not only go against Moses and Aaron, but we find out several times throughout that passage in verse 11 and then verse 30, that they're actually going against the Lord. They're not just questioning Moses' way or Aaron's way. They're questioning God's way. He had told them in His Word. He had called Moses. He had set apart Aaron. Now eventually, Korah and his company are swallowed in the earth as it's opened up before them. Now again, I'm trying not to go into great detail into this passage because it is just truly a large and tremendous passage. 
But the purpose of the story is that God did send Moses and he did set apart Aaron to serve as priest. Korah and his company did not understand the role of the priest through their sacrifices and the blood that was spilled that needed to be able to atone for their sins. See, they say that we're holy, but they don't understand how they became holy. It was through Aaron's sacrifices as priest and God dwelling amongst them because of their holiness as they have been set apart. But in this story, close to 15,000 people die because of Korah's rebellion. In Jude, you have the truth, which Jude spells out and says it's the faith delivered to all the saints. Then you have this false teaching which is perverting grace of God and denying Christ as their Lord and Savior and Master. And he, and he says that these false teachers are like that of Korah, who rise up and through their false teaching seek to be able to remove those which God had appointed to be able to serve the church. At that time, the apostles and their teaching, but today it would be those whom God has called and appointed as servants, as elders and deacons. But I think to take it even further, Jude is not merely just saying that they're rejecting the people God had appointed. He's ultimately saying they're rejecting Christ and His authority. It's not merely that they're going after the shepherds, but the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. They do not understand that if you hypothetically remove Christ from the office of prophet, priest, and king, then you are not holy. What is coming for you, Jude would warn, is that you might be swallowed up into the earth. In all of this, you see that at any point in history, you see this story lived out. It's not that the people who serve in the church who serve as deacons or elders, are untouchable. But what you see is there's men and women that rise and revolt against God's appointed leaders. And what I mean by that is not merely someone who calls himself God's leader or appointed or called by God. What I mean is those who are biblically qualified as spelled out, who are biblically faithful, This is why we have that great warning of those who are called to be able to teach God's Word because there's greater judgment for those who lead God's people astray. You notice in this the effect of that one person. Jude only highlights three people in this verse. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. But notice the effects of what those three people do and the damage which is done because of them. Cain, it's a little bit more subtle, but Cain goes off and he raises his children in his way. They get worse and worse, further away from God's truth. His sin has a drastic effect on his family. Notice what happens to Balaam. It's Balaam's sin and error, and what he does is he leads the whole nation of Israel 
to be able to worship Baal at pure. To, to eat food that's sacrificed to idols, to practice sexual immorality. Eventually, 25,000 people are, are die because of this plague that's brought upon them. One man's sin leads many astray. Notice what happens with Korah. It's Korah, his, his group of four, four of them, and then the 250. And what happens is they lead all these people astray. And that the punishment is brought upon 15,000 people. Do you see the sin that creeps into the church has a dangerous ripple effect that permeates throughout all the community of God's people? That all of these sins start from the heart. It's Cain, it's his anger, his jealousy is merely just an internal thing. And sin is crouching at the door. With Balaam, it's money in his pocket. This temptation that now he puts stumbling blocks in front of people. With Korah, it's the position of power. All of these are internal things that have drastic effect. These small seeds of sin gives birth to death, not just in themselves, but all that are around them. Jude's warning is that we need to be able to see the outcome of what happens to these false teachers. But also, we need to be reminded that we need to contend for the faith. We should not let these small sins creep into our hearts. And especially not into Christ's church. We need to get to a point where we can lovingly confront false teaching and false teachers. We need to be able to explain how and why it perverts the grace of God into sensuality. How it denies Jesus as Lord and the Master. We need to be aware of the teaching that is out there and how it often comes into the church undetected. We need to be cautious not to trust everything that we hear. But ensure that we, when we do, we have our Bibles open to be able to understand what the Bible is teaching. Now these opening verses in Jude might not be the most pleasant to our ears. But that does not mean it's not needed. We need verses like this to be able to warn us of the dangers of our own sin. What happens when we let false teaching creep in? When we do not contend for the faith, we need to be able to hold fast to that truth contained in the Gospel because anything else, we lose the Gospel in its entirety. It no longer becomes good news. We need God's grace. Not perverted grace. We need Jesus as our Lord and Master. Not thinking that we can rule ourselves. If we divert from this truth, what we end up living is a lie. Let's go to Lord in prayer. A gracious and most merciful Father, we thank You that You indeed breathed out all Scripture, which is helpful and useful for us for teaching, rebuke, profit, that we might be complete. 
We pray that these passages that we have read and studied in this time together in the book of Jude would help us to be able to be a workman, fit and complete. Lord, help us to be able to learn from these passages what it is that false teaching that creeps into our own hearts and into the church. Help us to be able to contend for the faith which is delivered to all the saints. For your glory and your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.